May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts serve to draw us nearer and nearer to you, O God. Amen. Okay, so there are two pieces to today's sermon. We're going to slow down a little bit and get into this story of Noah's Ark. And then we're going to pull this thread of slowness and understanding through to imagination, taking a look of this ancient practice of Midrash, the making of stories about biblical stories. Let's dive in. Pun intended. (laughs) To be honest, I don't love this story for a few reasons. One, there's actually a huge gap between the happy two-by-two rendition that we tell the children And the reality of God being so fed up with human corruption and violence that they decide to drown everyone and start again. Don't get me wrong. I love playing with kids and boats and animals. And teaching the basics of it to children is very important. But we skim past the predicament that got humanity to the point of God throwing in the towel in the first place. And then we rarely keep reading to learn about the traumatized Noah after the flood, who deals with his post-ark PTSD with generously flowing wine and questionable sexual choices. Many of us never got Noah's full story after Sunday school, so if your understanding of Noah begins and ends with the colorful animals boarding the ark, we're about to get a little dark here, so brace yourselves. In the scripture leading up to our story today, in Genesis 6, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Yikes. Though I'll admit, it's not that much of a stretch to consider the evil of humanity if you're watching the news at all. The scripture continues, it grieved him, God, to his heart. Ouch. That sounds a little bit like guilt. It's also a stark reminder, you mean my bad choices don't just affect me? So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, For I am sorry I made them. What? What about the God who knew me before I was born? The God who knit me together in my mother's womb? The God who calls me a precious and beloved child? This is another reason why the story chafes against me a little bit. This isn't my experience of God. But someone very wise once told me, don't stop at the bits you don't like or the bits you don't understand. Keep reading until you get to love. All right, let's keep going. Wait a minute, says God, wait a minute. There is one fellow, that Noah. Yep, I could use him and his family. Go build a big boat, Noah. And he does, with some very specific instructions. And then the ones on the guest list get in, and the scripture reads that God, Yahweh, the Lord, shut them in. I love that phrase, actually. It's a vivid image. God closing up the ark like Morgan Freeman, dressed in white, casually lifting the gangway. 
We'll get to the imagination piece in a few minutes, back to the Noah story. The door is closed, the floodwaters flow, and the seemingly ceaseless rains begin. The waters swell, and the ark is carried on its way, floating about. And here, here is where it gets really interesting. As the story continues, it so remarkably parallels the first creation story in Genesis. Let me explain. This is something that we could miss, but that the Hebrew people would find so provocative. In creation, God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And in the Noah story, the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. The image reminds me of God releasing that original dam, so to speak. He put in there to keep things in order, only to have them returned to that primal chaos. Another parallel comes once the onslaught of water has ceased. The creation story reads, a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And the Noah story reads, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Once they've hit land, we have another of these parallels. God blessed Noah and his sons, the new ancestors of humankind, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. These are the same words God said to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. So here's where this story turns a little bit for me. These parallels point out for us that the flood story is not primarily one of God's angry destruction, but rather of God's recreation. When we read the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, as a long story about the relationship between God and God's people, we see patterns, not of angry wrath and destruction, but of broken people and second chances. When we stay a little while and take some time to notice these details, we can learn a lot about who God is. Almost nothing in the Old Testament, or the New really, is simple. Almost nothing can be understood just by skimming the top or letting our knowledge remain in Sunday school territory. The wisdom of these words demand us to sink deeper and deeper into the waters. Which is not really how we do things today. The culture of these ancient words does not fit well with our modern culture. These stories require a long chew and a slow process of digestion rather than a protein shake in a blender that you slam back on your way out the door. Think of the way a cow eats versus the way a hungry puppy eats. And this is where the idea of Midrash comes in. Ancient Midrash is basically a collection of thoughts from rabbis through history doing this slow cud-chew on scripture. And through time, 
this practice became ingrained in Jewish culture. I studied with a rabbi who taught us that every reading has 70 faces, and you encounter a new face each time you greet it. And this is something that Christians adopted into the people of God also began to practice. It's why we refer to the scriptures as the living word, because we understand that God is still speaking to us through these texts by revealing more and new things to us with each new generation. What Midrash does is respond to contemporary problems and craft new stories, making connections between new realities and the unchanging biblical text. So what does this actually look like and why is this important or helpful? The story I read to the children today is an example of Midrash, a story about a story, one that we know well, and one in the Bible that we might not think twice about, because we know that story. But the Midrash gives us a perspective that we might not otherwise have thought of. Had you considered the flood from the point of view of the fish? Had the Noah story ever led you to the conclusion that God must be everywhere, as the Midrash story did? I have another example. Have you seen the movie Evan Almighty? God, Morgan Freeman dressed in white, gets in touch with Evan, an American congressman, to build an ark in preparation for an upcoming flood. Much resistance and hilarity ensues as Evan finally capitulates and builds an ark, much to the humiliation of his teenagers and the great scrutiny of his neighbors. I tried to make the technology work to show you what that looked like, but I don't think it's gonna happen. Maybe, maybe. Okay, so you have to go and find this. I'll post it on the website after. But there's this tremendous scene. Close your eyes, I'm gonna express it to you in the best way I can. Where Evan, the modern day Noah, is on the boat and there are TV cameras all around him taking stock of this giant ark and this ridiculous man who has built it. And everyone is ridiculing him. And as he stands on the boat, the dam at the very top of the mountain gives way and water, thundering, rushing, spilling, destructive water flows down into the valley and all the people ridiculing him down at the bottom of the basin below hear the thunder, feel the shaking of the earth and turn and scream, get on the boat, get on the boat. And they, they run onto the boat to the cacophony of the moos and the neighs and the brays and the roars and the tweets and the screams of the animals all around. And they get on the ark and the police officers close the door just in time as the water hits the ark and breaks down all of the supporting beams around the ark. It's crashing, it's loud, the wood tears apart. And the ark lifts, 
It creaks, it groans, the water splashes on the deck, the people scream in terror, and the ark is floating. It is, but floating is too gentle a word. The ark is in rapids as the water continues to flood down from the dam. It is rocking here and rocking there. The animals are making noise. And Evan, the one who trusted God, stops for a moment and goes, it happened. This is a modern form of Midrash. The images and sounds from the screen, from the speakers, unlock for us our imaginations to understand the fullness of the story. The water, the creaking boat, the violence of the movement of the water, the speed of the ark, the animal sounds, the terror of those on board. The flood is not this la la la, Noah and the animals, bedtime story only for our children. None of our Bible stories are. They are vivid and shocking and filled with sensory stimulation if we dare to notice. And if we let our understanding stay in the simplistic surface level meanings, scripture doesn't change our lives. It doesn't push us into new depths of love and understanding. This practice of making something new from our scriptural tradition of holding the old and the new gives us the chance to step in and soak in the story and to stay long enough for our fingers to get wrinkly, for our hearts to be changed. We have all been gifted with imaginations. I know this because I see it demonstrated in a thousand different ways. Through art, during playtime, through new expressions of music, through knitted patterns and masterpiece quilts. I see it in carefully planned gardens, in measured and organized tool sheds, in tenderly crafted meals, in every novel we read or TV show we watch, we are igniting our imaginations. Of course, we should use that gift in our faith as well. So I invite you this week to pull out your Bibles and turn to a story you think you know. One that you could probably tell to a child even without the Bible. Jesus feeding the 5,000 with two loaves and five fish. The fishermen, after catching nothing out all night, Jesus telling them to drop their nets on the other side and they haul in their biggest catch. The crucifixion. Even if you are new at this church thing or have returned after a long while away, you likely know the story of the Good Samaritan. So pull it out. Read it. And then read it again. And then read it again. But this time, be on the hunt for sound. Then read it again, thinking of the smells all around. 
Then read it again. Is there food? What would that have tasted like? Did the characters touch? What would the cloth have felt like? You don't actually need to know the answers to these questions to wonder about them. And I will guarantee that if you sit and you bathe in the story just a little while, giving yourself time to get those wrinkly fingers, something profound and holy will happen. You will notice details that you could have sworn were never there before. You see, when we enter into that creative place, we are entering into a space with the one who created and is still creating. The one who yearns to share more with us, to draw us in, and who planted in us this tremendous capacity to broaden and broaden and broaden, to learn and to grow and to be changed. The one who floods our hearts with love and second chances, who desires our recreation and gives us every new, sometimes painful, opportunity to begin again and who promises, marked by that glorious, beautiful, colorful bow in the sky, to never, never leave us. May we understand the depths of this promise. Amen.